Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Praying together. Father, we praise you for your goodness and your kindness. We praise you for your word. Father, I pray now for the help of your spirit in preaching your word. I pray that you would come now in power to give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to what you will speak to us. Father, we need your help today as we look to your word. Would you come and help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today we're going to look again at this spectacular psalm, Psalm 103. Uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago we started this psalm and we got about halfway through and today we're going to finish the second half. Last time we looked at Psalm 103, we mentioned that Psalm 103 gives us these foundational truths about the character and the work of God. What does our world, what does our country need the most right now when we think about everything that we have going on? Our culture's greatest need is to know and to follow the living God. Without knowing God, without knowing his word, our country, our world, is left groping in the dark, left adrift in a vast sea of confusion and sin and misery without being tethered to anything that will keep us afloat, anything that will keep us moving in the right direction. So really the need of the hour for God's people in our land right now is to turn off our TVs and to put down our phones and to close our social media apps and listen to what the king of the earth has to say about himself and about our world. There really is no more culturally relevant thing we could do right now as God's people other than to open up our Bibles and listen. Listen to what God has to say. Okay, so let's jump into our passage that we read just a few minutes ago out of Psalm 103. And we're going to begin to look at uh, these several truths that David tells us about who God is. We're going to see three truths about the character of God in our passage today. The first truth you see about God in what we just read in Psalm 103 is that God is a father to his people. God is a father to his people. Listening to what David writes. He writes in verses 13 to 14, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So David wants to describe God's loving heart towards his children, and he uses this analogy of an earthly father to describe who God is and what he's like. And it's a providential mercy that we happen to be looking at this verse about fathers on today, uh, Father's Day. David assumes that we should instinctively know what a good father is like. That fathers uh, should love their children in a way that's full of compassionate love. We know from other parts of the scriptures that all earthly fathers are really meant to pattern their vocation after God, the perfect heavenly father. Just as God loves and disciplines his children, earthly fathers are to love and discipline their children. Just as God provides for and cares for his children, earthly fathers are to provide for and care for their children. 
In the Old Testament, God is described uh, as the father of his people, Israel. When God commands Moses to confront Pharaoh, he gives Moses a message to deliver to Pharaoh. Do you remember what he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh? The message is this. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he might serve me. Of course, this glorious truth comes into a climax in the work of the gospel, how God the Father, through his Son and his Spirit, adopts sinners into his family. Regardless of what our earthly families are like, every Christian is a beloved son, a beloved daughter of God the Father, a status that's been forever secured for us through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our status as beloved children of God is one of the most important aspects of our identities as Christians. This is what Paul proclaims, one of my favorite verses in all of Romans. He says, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This truth about God being our Father, it should encourage us and it should challenge us in a, a variety of ways. I've got just two things here. I want us to consider uh, with this. First, the fatherhood of God should encourage those of us who are given a very broken image of God the Father through our earthly fathers. The painful legacy of broken fathers, it's very much a larger societal problem that really needs to be grabbing a lot more attention in our headlines than it currently does. Consider just a few statistics uh, about fathers. You can find most of these from this great website, fathers.com. Listen to this. According to the 2012 census, 57.6% of black children, 31.2% of Hispanic children, 20.7% of white children, they all live in homes where there's no father who's present. And of course, the cost of fatherlessness in our society is staggering when you consider there's a mountain of clear statistical data to support this. 71% of people who are going to drop out of high school, they come from fatherless homes. Children are more than twice as likely to commit suicide when they come from a home where there's only one parent. Children who grow up without a father are almost four times more likely to live in a household that is at or below the poverty line. A fatherless home significantly increases the probability that a child will later be incarcerated or experience adolescent pregnancy. And sadly enough, there will likely be no marches. There will likely be little public outrage, no marketing campaigns by major companies or social media over this staggering problem. But I believe that we as God's church, we have to tell the truth. We're called to tell the truth about the problems we face as a society. We need to proclaim to our culture that the most effective way to combat sins like racism and cruel evil behavior that strips away the dignity of image bearers is to have fathers who know and follow God the Father and teach their children to do the same. Fathers who abandon or largely ignore their mission to encapsulate the character of God they produce a generation of people who have a very hard time understanding who God is. Broken fathers fuel enormous spiritual confusion for their children. I regularly talk to men who grew, grew up in Christian homes 
but their father was really more of a source of shame and criticism for them than someone who demonstrated the love and grace of God. Harsh, merciless fathers don't produce strong men. They create men who are likely the very opposite of what was intended. They create men who are insecure, men who cannot receive grace, and they can't give grace to anybody else either. Graceless fathers give their children a bitter inheritance that will likely be felt throughout a lifetime. So again, this truth that God is our perfect heavenly father should be an enormous source of comfort for us, an enormous source of strength for us. This truth can bring healing to women who have been deeply wounded by their own fathers. It can bring healing and strength to men who feel lost in knowing what does it mean to be a man and a father who blesses and loves his family. The second truth about this fatherhood, about the fatherhood of God, um, is it also gives earthly fathers our calling. It gives us our marching orders. Verses 13 and 14, our psalm, give men with the most crucial, daunting task of what it means to be a father. God's call to fatherhood is nothing less than a call to demonstrate daily to our children what is the character of God like. That God is actively engaged in his world. He's not passively aloof. That God is gracious and merciful, not harsh and quick-tempered. That God is wise and caring, not foolish and cold. And that God is the God whose love overflows through his never-ending, glad, generous giving. But he's never tight-fisted or gives in a way that's grumbling or begrudging. And godly fathers realize on a regular basis maybe a daily basis, just how far we fall short of our calling to emulate God himself. And they view every day as a new opportunity to repent of ungodly, unfatherly behavior and to strive by the help and grace of God to persevere in our calling. Okay, what else does it mean that God is our Father when we think about the Scriptures? Well, David's going to continue on in verse 14. Listen again to what he says. He says, about God's fatherly care. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This phrase, he knows our frame, it could really be translated uh, in another way that says he knows how we are formed. That makes it a little bit more clear. That's clearly a reference to the creation story of Adam in Genesis where God forms Adam's body from the dust of the ground and he breathes into Adam his animating breath of life. In many aspects of our culture, we're really fascinated by origin stories, aren't we? Whether it's your favorite Star Wars movie or whether it's uh, family tree information from someplace like Ancestry.com, the idea uh, is that you learn crucial things about yourself and about other people if you understand your roots, if you understand the circumstances, the events that shape and form you in crucial ways. There's a lot of truth in this. You can learn a lot about by someone by understanding his or her story, understanding their past. We see the same idea in the scriptures. David mentions that another aspect of God's loving kindness towards us is that he never forgets our origin story, a story that he himself authored. We're told several times about the necessity of God's people remembering in our psalm. But it's interesting, in verse 14, this is the only case where we're told that God remembers 
And so this short little phrase should immediately grab your attention. God remembers. What does he remember? He remembers how you're formed. He remembers your dust. The Genesis account holds together two seemingly contradictory truths about what does it mean to be human. On the one hand, we are all glorious because we are all made to reflect the glory of the image of the everlasting God. But we are all inescapably finite because we come from the earth, a physical space that has its own God-imposed limits and boundaries. And as much as we hate to face this, we will never escape our limited, finite, fragile nature as human beings. And it's crucial to see that God actually made us this way. And it's good that he made you this way. God could have made us in in some other way, but he didn't. If he had made us any other way, then he really would have sanctioned idolatry. He made the creation to depend on the creator. He made his glorious, finite crown of creation to be people who find life not in themselves, but by listening to and following, obeying and trusting the living God. Even before the fall, God never intended human beings to be self-sufficient, but instead dependent on God for everything, for life, for breath, health, and everything else. This was one of the aspects of our first parents' tragic decision and the first act of rebellion in the fall. Think about this. One of the more alluring aspects of Satan's temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was this idea that Adam and his wife wouldn't have to depend on God to get what they wanted and what they needed. They could go outside of God's commands, God's prescribed limits in order to become wise. Their rebellion really was the first perverse declaration of independence. And so this truth about our inherently limited nature as human beings, this is so crucial for us to grasp as believers. Because so much of our anxiety in our our lives, so much of our fear, is coming when we forget who we are. Often we shame ourselves, we condemn ourselves even more for our weaknesses than we do for our sins. I see this a lot with parents, I see it especially with mothers. Because parents can so easily, mercilessly punish ourselves Because of your own physical or emotional or spiritual weaknesses, especially when we feel the effects of our weaknesses on others. Anxiety for us often so much comes when we live with this lust to be God. Perfect, flawless, self-sufficient, infinitely strong, instead of embracing the reality of our God-given limits, our God-given weaknesses. And this plays itself out in a variety of ways in our marriages, our families, our relationships. Parents, especially dads, we make a careful distinction in our family between sin and weakness. We're to treat each one of these things differently. And a lot of times it takes a lot of wisdom to see the difference between the two. We confront and discipline sin in a way that's loving and strong. But we're called to treat our children's weaknesses with mercy, with patience, with care, in a way that encourages and strengthens them instead of a way that crushes. So do you crush your children's weaknesses? Or do you demonstrate the compassion and gracious 
expectations of God when they're exposed on a daily basis. Here's the thing. If you don't believe that God is gracious towards your own weaknesses, then you will never have any grace for other people's weaknesses either. So people of God, we can really summarize all this with this question. Do you remember your origin story? Do you live in light of who you truly are, the person God created you to be? Or do you work hard to avoid and resist the truth that you are dust? Do you spiritually torture yourself by accusing and condemning your weaknesses and your physical limitations? Or do you remember what God always remembers about you? That there will always be an aspect of your humanity that you can never eradicate. A part of you that in some way will be weak, needy, and dependent. God sees and understands your weaknesses far better than you do. And his response is not shame or guilt for your weaknesses, but instead gracious, patient compassion. Can you treat your weaknesses and others' weaknesses in a way that reflects God's compassion and his care? Okay, what else do we see in our psalm about the character of God? Let's move on. Let's look at verses 15 through 18. What else does uh, David tell us about who God is? The second thing we see about uh, who God is in our passage is that God is the God of his covenant people. Listen again to what David writes. He says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So David starts by contrasting for us, again, one of the differences between human beings and God. The Bible in a variety of places will use the beauty of the physical world, things like grass or flowers, as illustrations of the transitory nature of the world we live in. Ecclesiastes will communicate the same idea of this image of human life as a vapor or a mist. It's something that's here, and then it's gone in a relatively short amount of time. So David says that humanity's time on earth is like the beauty of the grass and the flowers. It makes its presence known, but quickly it fades away, just as soon as a strong wind comes to blow it over. But David says that God's steadfast love is very different from this. It will last. It will endure when all the other kingdoms of this earth wear out and fade away. It will outlast everything else this world says to us that is important. David tells us that God's steadfast love for his people will endure forever. It will be from everlasting to everlasting. David's words here give us much-needed perspective on what really matters in a world that is constantly clamoring for our attention to value and buy whatever it wants to sell us. God's steadfast love for his people will outlast everything else that this fallen world tells you to build your life on. And this really should give us a conspicuously hopeful perspective in our current cultural climate that wants to steadily pump more and more fear and anxiety into your heart with each passing dreadful headline. It's incredible, isn't it, to consider that six months ago nobody here knew what the coronavirus was? 
And think about this, in another century, nobody else is going to know what it is either, outside of a history book. But what will be proclaimed and sung and experienced a thousand years from now will be God's steadfast love for his people. The good news of the gospel is that the steadfast love of the triune God is from everlasting to everlasting. God's eternal love for his people is vast enough to consume all eternity. And despite how deeply broken and dark our world currently is, God wants us to see that all of human history is moving towards the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that God is the king of love who will forever protect and provide and care for his people. And David makes it abundantly clear that God's eternal steadfast love is not given out indiscriminately to every human being on earth. Instead, it's directed to a particular group of people, God's covenant people. While God does demonstrate gracious care towards every person on earth, even providing good gifts to people who hate him and rebel against him, it's clear that his special steadfast love is given to his church, to his particular people. David describes the recipients of this love as those who fear him. And he also mentions that God's righteousness is given to our children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So all these little short various phrases that uh, David gives us to describe the people who receive God's blessings are really all different aspects of this one idea you see all throughout the Bible, this idea of God's covenant. God's covenant in the scripture is one of the most important foundational truths regarding how God relates to his people. There's a variety of ways that we could understand uh, this word covenant in verse 18, but I think a good succinct definition of the word covenant is that God's covenant in the scriptures is his bond of union and communion with his people through his word, through his appointed sacraments. God has given his sacraments, his prescribed rituals to give meaning and shape to really our entire Christian life. He gives us the ritual of initiation to those who become part of his people. Things like circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New Testament. And he gives other rituals to provide ongoing nourishment and care for his people. Things like the Lord's Supper. Notice also David mentions one of our greatest blessings of being joined to God through his covenant. He mentions that God grants his righteousness to our children's children. We see throughout the scriptures... Uh, God including the children of believing adults among his people. We can think about when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis. He made it clear that Abraham and his children will both receive the blessings of God's promises. And this pattern is not nullified in, in the New Testament, but only reinforced. And for those of us with children, this aspect of our children being included in the people of God as their birthright, it's one of the most precious aspects of God's being a part of God's covenant people. I'd venture to guess that many of us here have been drawn to Trinity because of this clear, explicit teaching that we hold to. But it's equally important when we read the scriptures to understand that being a part of God's covenant comes with enormous blessings, but also enormous responsibilities. David mentions a huge part of these responsibilities in verses 17 through 18. He tells us that God's everlasting, steadfast love is to be received by faith. These descriptions of God's covenant within the context of our verses tell us something vital about God's gracious, steadfast love given to his people. 
that God does not intend for us to be mere passive recipients of his love, but that receiving his love must translate into active, living faith, a faith that fears God, a faith that keeps God's covenant and strives to listen to and trust and obey God's commandments. Being a part of God's people comes with this call to take up his promises by faith and devote our entire lives to faithful obedience. And this is the awesome responsibility of parents who have covenant children to teach our children who God is by what we say and by how we live. The scriptures are filled with tragic examples of various people who are part of God's covenant people and they presume on the grace and the love of God. People who broke God's covenant by failing to persevere in repentance and faith. Much of the history of the biblical story is really meant to teach us that merely being born into God's covenant people isn't enough to ensure us that we will reach our final destination of the new heavens and new earth. Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman within God's covenant people, we must take up God's promises for ourselves by faith and appropriate his promises by faith to enjoy the blessings of God's salvation. So another way I think of saying this is that receiving God's steadfast love for his people isn't primarily about intellectual assent, but it's about receiving God's promises by faith in ways that are going to bring about deep transformation in our lives. Because we've been perfectly loved by the living God, we want to live for God, not ourselves. We want to trust and obey his word more than we trust ourselves or listen to any other voice in the world. Okay, so we've seen that God is our Father. We've also seen He's the God of His covenant people. The final thing I want us to think about in the last uh, two, three verses of our, our psalm is that God is also King over all the earth. He's King over all the earth. Listen to what David writes in verse 19. He says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. This verse gives us another aspect of God's character that's crucial to our faith that the triune God is King over the world He's made. And the kingship of God is a theme that runs throughout the Psalter. We see this as early as Psalm 2, when the Lord warns all the rebellious kings of the earth to recognize his reigning rule and the rule of his appointed king, something he's described as the Lord's begotten son. This truth obviously comes into full focus in the coming of the Lord Jesus, God's promised son of David, the one God who would bring God's reigning rule to earth in this climactic way that defeats God's greatest enemies. Satan, sin, and death. But we as God's people, we need to see that we are making a bold proclamation of our faith in our day and age. When we see everything that's going on, when we see a global pandemic, when we see our unstable political and cultural condition, when we see the violence, the warring factions in our society that generate and feed on hate and fear, the nonstop news cycle that is depressing, and so many other things. And in the midst of all this proclaim, there's someone who's in charge of everything. Believing the simple truth that God is the king over all the chaos and the misery and the mess of our world, this is no small thing for us right now. And during these stormy times, this is a truth we're going to have to cling tighter to more than we have ever before. Now more than ever before, we must interpret every headline, 
every breaking news development, every election result, every Supreme Court decision in light of the truth that God's kingdom rules over all. And there really are only two camps in light of this truth uh, that people can fall into as human beings. Either we can listen to the voice of the king of all the earth, the one who made us and loves us, and follow him in repentance and faith. Or we can live under the illusion that there is an authority higher than the living God, whether it's our own authority or someone else's. And we can live with a spiritual version of temporary insanity that chooses a path of foolish, self-destructive rebellion, a path that will only end in the revelation of God's eternal judgment. Every human being is in either one of these two places. And I believe as time goes on in our country and everywhere else in the world, the distinction between these two different groups is going to become more and more apparent. And so in a world that at first glance appears to be terrifyingly out of control, this is our, our best news. This is comforting news. That the living God, the triune God of the Bible, he is king over all the earth, and that his plans and his purposes are going to prevail over the schemes of every wicked, sinful human heart. The final verses of our passage, they give us another aspect of the goodness of God's reigning rule. I'll say this one last thing, and we'll finish up today. That's what David says in verses 20 through 22. What is he doing here? He's giving us a preview of the goal of God's rule over the world. Where are we headed? The goal of God's rule over this world is to restore his creation so that it does what it was made to do from the very beginning, worship. In the last few verses of our psalm, we get a preview of eternity when we as God's people will join the innumerable course of all of God's creation in this never-ending place of praise and worship people of God, the king of all creation, your perfect heavenly father, who poured out his love on you in Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he's leading you somewhere that is eternally good. He's leading you to a place where your life will be forever filled with God's blessings and your heart will be forever full and blessing God. And we will accompany angels and a perfected creation and the greatest worship service we could ever experience. In this coming day, all the pain, all the struggles of this life, they're going to fade away like a bad dream. And what will consume us forever, forever will be this overwhelming truth. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word that is true and good. I pray, Father, through the power of your spirit now as you continue to minister to us, feed us. Father, would you nourish us through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you empower us to be the people you've called us to be, people who proclaim the hope that we have in you, that you are our king, you are our savior, and that you are leading us somewhere eternally good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.